Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in Westminster as once again, we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Chaloner, and today I'm joined by Richard Olivier, the Artistic Director at Olivier Mythodrama, a professional training and coaching company whose mission is to develop authentic leaders, which in the context of this podcast is very topical indeed. Richard, welcome. Very good to have you on the program today. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Likewise. Now, um, Richard, since it is uh, very much your area of expertise, considering everything that's going on at the moment with the COVID-19 outbreak, what advice would you give to someone who is about to start their first day in the leadership role? <laughs> um, prepare for a roller coaster, uh, for sure. Um, uh, find a mentor. Um, make sure you're not doing it on your own. Um, be kind to yourself, uh, and breathe, uh, quite deeply very often. Sounds like really good advice. Um, because it's interesting how you sort of mentioned that second point that the fact that leaders aren't necessarily alone in the, uh, the work that they're doing, it's important for leadership figures to remember that it's very much a team effort as opposed to a one man or one woman job, isn't it? Absolutely. And Inevitably, you know, in, in times of, of crisis, uh, people look to whoever is in nominal charge to make uh, quick uh, decisions. And that can absolutely take a, an emotional and what I would call a psychic toll. Um, and, and that's why, you know, we, we certainly advise people to look after themselves and make sure that they have some trusted advisors around or coaches um, colleagues that they can confide in uh, about the difficult times. Uh, there's a, a famous speech we, we use in our work from the play of Henry V, um, which uh, where where Henry V goes through his dark night of the soul, the kind of crisis before the Battle of Agincourt, uh, and he says to himself, "Upon the king, let us our lives, our wives, our debts, our souls, and our children." throw upon the king, we must bear all, oh, hard condition. And and, and that, uh, for us, is a real felt reality uh, uh, of what all leaders at pretty much every level of management and leadership will be feeling in a crisis. And knowing how to hold yourself through it becomes uh, ever more important. Absolutely right. And in the wake of the crisis as well, we've seen some very contrasting approaches from some of the world's leaders also. We've seen leaders like Xi Jinping, we've seen Giuseppe Conte lock countries down much earlier than maybe we have. We've taken in the UK um, a very much less hands-on approach, as it were. The money's there, of course, there are procedures in place, but even though there are talks of lockdowns now being mooted, we have in many ways just been waiting to see what happens. If we take that sort of away from this crisis take that away from politics at the moment, Richard. Which approach as a leader do you generally prefer to take when dealing with difficulties? Would you rather be proactive and dive straight in, get on top of the situation, or would you rather let it play out a bit and see how matters develop before you take action? Well, great question. And, and I think the first thing I would say is that there's no easy answer. I think, I think it is situational. So, so different leaders in different times and different places um, will opt for one of those two. Um, uh, and there may be a few others along the way that aren't so wise. But e- either of those can be 
really helpful. I mean, my understanding, I'm in Spain in lockdown now for a week, and, um, you know, they learned from what Italy didn't do, which was, you know, do it, do it too slowly and hospitals, you know, in the north of the country get completely overwhelmed. And, and my understanding is the UK at present that the NHS is not overwhelmed, that it is uh, able to cope with what is happening currently, but it is very likely there will be a time when it will be overwhelmed and, and um, the government needs to try and preempt that um, probably by, by 10 days in order to limit um, the stress on, on hospitals at, at the peak level, which is unlikely to be reached for a few weeks. For certain, and it's important um, in that sense to have that balance as a leader between being proactive and having that plan, those contingency measures in place, but also being reactive and being able to take things as they come as well. That is really important, isn't it? It is. I mean, we we work with uh, leadership archetypes, um, um, 10 different archetypes we we use, and the ones that seem to be most relevant now as a a pair are what we call the, the nurturing strategist. Uh, uh, and the nurturer is the one who can slow down, who can take stock, who can understand how others are feeling um, and what emotions are running the show and might be in danger of running you know, the decision-making process. And the strategist is the one who can put sensible boundaries in place and, and think uh, about different steps moving forward. And, it, and that probably you know, bridges the gap a little bit between the two approaches you, you were talking about about uh, being able to to go slow and have a very clear plan uh, for when going slow doesn't work anymore. For sure. It's very interesting that you mentioned those different types of leaders. Um, do you think there are maybe examples of leaders throughout history, maybe living or dead, who maybe fall into either of those categories or are the ideal type of leader in your view? Yes. I mean, well, for us, you know, the, the archetypes are like, you know, uh, underlying patterns that inform human nature and and culture. So, you know, archetypes have been with us back from the the first cave paintings, really, where we had, you know, hunters and gatherers and sovereigns and and priests, you know, represented on on walls 40,000 years ago. And um, the the archetypes don't go away, but different people, you know, uh, come into uh, leadership and, and will embody them. In, in different ways, um, for better or worse, you know, and some people seem to be perfectly able to adapt themselves for the time that they're in, you know, and others fall short, you know, either they can't adapt themselves, or in some cases, they may believe, you know, their first instinct is always going to be the right one. So they, they think of themselves a little like, you know, God's gift. And on a bad day, that can really come to to haunt even the most confident, you know, and and wise leader, believing that you know. Um, So the the balance of being able to shift and and know when your favorite style or your normal way of leading is no longer fit for purpose is is very key to uh, effective crisis management. Mm, For sure. And Do you think that great leaders are born into certain archetypes with certain qualities or are the qualities of good leadership something that you can learn and accumulate over a number of years? Uh, Both. Uh, You know, I think there are some things that most human beings tend to respond to in terms of what they look for as leaders, which are people who are visible, 
people who have a vision of a better future, um, the, the kind of um, Nelson Mandela, you know, a, a visionary leader uh, who can hold a country together in a time of potential chaos and, and apparently see it through, you know, to a time of potential blessing. Um, uh, but there are so many different styles and so many different leaders. And our sense is really that ev- everyone can develop leadership. But, but one of the, the, the prime pieces that we believe is important is, is the calling to leadership. Um, you know, leadership for us shouldn't be a job or a duty or the next step up a ladder uh, on an organizational pyramid. It, it, it really should be this is what I'm here to do. I, I believe I am the right enough person, you know, in the right enough time, uh, attempting to do the right enough thing. And and, and those who aren't called, who, who, for whom it is a job or, or perhaps a duty rather than a joy uh, uh, on the good days, for sure, um, may struggle in, in the crisis time because they're, uh, they're in a resource of feeling I'm the right person in the right place at the right time um, may, may be lacking. It's really interesting how you look at leadership there as a calling, um, essentially, Richard. With that in mind, do you think that leadership in itself is as celebrated as much as it should be in the UK? I, I think leadership is, is one of the most difficult things to do. Uh, I also have a sense as we look at the emerging 21st century that more and more people are being asked and or required to step into leadership in, in numerous different ways. You know, if I uh, look recently at things like, you know, the um, uh, Fridays for Futures for uh, even some of the Extinction Rebellion uh, stuff that's been very visible, uh, you know, in, in the UK certainly over the last year. That, that is a very different style of leadership than the bureaucratic leadership that might often uh, uh, be necessary in government, um, the kind of entrepreneurial leadership that might often be necessary in corporations and so on. So there's a, there's a new kind of individuality of spirit um, that seems to have been birthed with this uh, new millennium. Uh, and, and that... The, there seems to be more of an interest in individuals finding their own way to do things uh, rather than following the norm or following the herd or following the, the, the pattern. And that kind of unique individual expression of leaders, uh, I, I do celebrate that. And I do think there are more people stepping into it. And we probably need many more hundreds of thousands to step into their own inner leadership you know, uh, in the next 25 years. Yeah, that's really interesting. And um, going back um, a little bit, um, I know you mentioned uh, Nelson Mandela as one name who is a great visionary. Um, what would you, what do you think that Nelson Mandela would say if he addressed um, a country during this um, COVID nineteen crisis, or even say he addressed the staff at your company? Do you think what sort of things could Nelson Mandela say? Well, of course, it's impossible to know what you know a, a dead great spirit might 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 say in the current time, but. Mm. You know, from from what I've studied uh, of, of his leadership style, he he made everyone feel welcome. Um, he he didn't do hierarchy. So you know, if he was going to a great dinner, he'd talk as much to the chef who made the dinner as to the president who was sitting next to him at a great banquet, um, and 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 treating everyone as equals. 
Um, uh, and and I think that is something that with people in a, in a country who may be getting worried about supplies and so on would, would greatly value the, the notion that, that that we are all equal in this. Absolutely. And do you think that that new generation of leaders who are up and coming and maybe looking at leadership in a very different way in the future, do you think that Nelson Mandela is maybe a figure that they can draw some inspiration from? I would hope so. And I think, you know, more relevant now, perhaps, you know, Greta Thunberg and, and others who are really putting themselves on, on the line for what they believe in, in a way, you know, that Nelson Mandela obviously did in, in his generation. Um, but I do think that the, the, the younger leaders who I meet are looking for more immediate inspiration and they're perhaps less drawn to uh, studying the, 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 the leaders who were around and uh, doing their work um, further or longer ago in, in, in our time frame now. That's really interesting. Um, I am conscious of uh, running out of time, uh, Richard, but uh, before we do wrap things up, do give me an idea of what you imagine the next 12 months will hold for Olivier Mythodrama and what you hope to achieve in that time as well. A lot of it is going to be unknown. Um, you know, we had a strategy meeting a little earlier on this afternoon, and, and we were saying, you know, we kind of we we can't re- we can try and plan a week at a time for the next month, um, but but things are changing every day. Um, uh, we are we're actually luckily in the middle of developing our whole online learning, e-learning, um, online coaching offering that, that, that predated the crisis by about uh, six months. So we have shifted everything uh, online. Um, we're imagining that, that people will not be doing face-to-face delivery meetings um, until at least September, and that may end up being in, in the new year before a general movement and travel for work is encouraged again. So I think, you know, the, we are adapting to, to a new world, a new theme. We, we are hoping that our offering um, can help people who need to adapt very rapidly to challenging situations. That's what the, um, the Archetypes at Work uh, offering uh, is, is specifically designed for. What, what energy do you need to activate today? to meet the challenges that are going to be on your desk this morning. And, um, you know, that on the one hand feels ever more relevant. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, everyone is so busy um, that keeping their heads, you know, above water and balancing family needs, um, work needs, colleagues needs, personal needs uh, may well take uh, 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 the absolute vast amount of people's attention for the next few months. So, so we're, we're focusing on our internal training um, we, we are teaching ourselves everything we think we need to learn for the new world and we'll be offering it to people uh, as and when they're ready to, you know, uh, uh, accept a hand. Definitely. We are certainly living in uh, changing times indeed. Um, Richard, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the uh, the programme today and both um, listening to and learning from uh, what you've had to say. And um, I'd love to get you hopefully back on on the program in a few months' time to see how things have panned out in that regard. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been fantastic. Um, We now hand over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. 
Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White, and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, And then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on. I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive mm. um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- you know, a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is 
the real world and uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you and you need that grounding and again that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life i think so yeah i, I mean very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things being with different people sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international cricket. And in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know... uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was Mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, I think it was the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, (laughs) like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it's it just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the, the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, as you were lucky enough, you're privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your t- 
time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually. The most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a big part of it for me. Um, You know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment. And uh, the job of the leadership or the management is to to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the the way they they view the world. there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, 
impressive you might be as a person, they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was... Firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from yeah but mm. the rest of the game had moved on yeah. and the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially but also in in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I, was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But... Actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of, Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. 
Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it, last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that. 
uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re- uh, wearing red. So it w- w- what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. Yeah. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the bra- blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one, day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in Mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to. I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.